I'm going to read this morning uh, Romans chapter 7 and into chapter 8. So beginning at Romans chapter 7, 1, you can follow in the Pew Bible or on the screen in front of you. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet." But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I, seen, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and 
For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to, their, to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For... The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask now that you by your Spirit would give us right understanding and application of your Word as your Spirit makes it known to us, applies it to us, and gives us the desire and the power to do it. In Jesus' name we pray for His glory. Amen. Read the whole section here because as we come to these central passages of the Roman letter in chapters 7 and 8, we also take a more focused look at one of the primary themes of Paul's writing in general, that just as the Old Testament law did not accomplish the initial work of salvation for believers, that is, their justification, so also it cannot accomplish the continuation of their salvation their sanctification and glory. That is, what has begun in faith cannot be finished by works of the law. Now, a common misconception of Romans is that Paul is refuting the false teaching which says that one can become a Christian by adherence to God's standard expressed in the law. And and not that such people do not exist, but Paul is actually writing to genuine Christians who know that their salvation was accomplished as an act of God through the work of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit to produce a conversion in them. If they had believed that the initial salvation came from anywhere other than through Christ alone, Paul would not be addressing them as those who belong to Jesus, who are loved by God and called to be saints. No, the issue was that having received salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there were those in the churches who were teaching that once you were saved, your growth, that is, your sanctification, would be accomplished by adherence to the law. That what God had begun by the work of the Spirit was now being perfected by works of the law. Elsewhere, Paul blasts the churches of Galatia, Galatians 3, 1 to 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, the expected and obvious answer is no. No, they did not receive the Spirit by works of the law, but had, in fact, received the Spirit by faith alone. And then Paul's argument follows then, are are you so foolish as to go back to what didn't work? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, the law, church, offers both a carrot and a stick, two options. Obey it completely, and you will receive life and blessing. Fail to adhere, and you will receive the curse which is due to all those who rebel against the living God. And so it is vital that we not consider ourselves under the law even for our sanctification. As Paul continues in Galatians, Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. The law revealed God's righteous standard, but it provided none of the desire and power necessary to carry it out. And so, to be under the law, then, is to be under a curse. Now, this observation is obvious to anyone familiar with Israelite history in the Bible. Israel's life under the law didn't produce righteousness, for they sinned so repeatedly and dramatically that they ended up in exile. Life under the law spelled not life for Israel, but it spelled death. This is why faithful Israelites eagerly awaited the new covenant promised through God's prophets. We'll read Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, one of the many prophecies of the new covenant. It says, I, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will make my spirit, or I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so, those who are united with Christ have died to the dominion of the law and are now enabled to do what Israel was called to do bear fruit for God. The promised Spirit has become a reality for those united with Christ in His death and resurrection so that God is causing them to bear the fruit of obedience from the new heart of flesh. For Paul, grace is the only hope for salvation because it is a grace which transforms us. The only thing that will lead to true obedience from the heart is God's grace, the work of God by God's Spirit in those who have come into this covenant, not by works of the law. And so our passage this morning begins first by describing the way in which the law only serves to arouse our sinful passions, producing death, which is why in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to the law as the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, and also the ministry of condemnation. 
And then with the remainder of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, which we'll look at in future weeks, God willing, it contrasts life under the law with what it looks like to have life in Christ and with the Spirit of God at work in us. So we'll read again the first three verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this is, I believe, the fifth or sixth time that Paul begins with, do you not know, which is his way of saying that this is something which, in fact, they do know, uh, or at least it should be quite obvious to those who know the law. Now, Gentile Christians would also have been taught from the Old Testament, uh, but when Paul explicitly narrows the group by saying that he is now speaking to those who know the law, he is probably addressing Jewish Christians, or at least those with some background in the synagogue. What these people know, those who were once formerly under the law know, is that the law only rules over a person while they are alive. Now, this seems like a a funny thing to have a really strong doctrine about, but this principle was well known from the Old Testament and generally agreed upon in Jewish literature. If you were dead, you're no longer keeping the law. And nowhere was this principle better established than in the case of marriage, for it was well known from the law of Moses that marriage only lasts as long as both spouses live. Now, the details here make it very clear that we are talking only about the Mosaic law here, the law which was transmitted through Moses to Israel. Under Roman law, a woman could divorce her husband and leave him. But under Jewish law, only the husband had the right to issue a certificate of divorce to his wife. And so we know this is specifically Mosaic law, Old Testament law, because uh, no woman was forced to live with any man under the law of Christ. In fact, under the law of Christ, a wife could leave her husband for any reason. If she would prefer to live alone, then with an abusive spouse, she can. And as long as she doesn't remarry, she is not an adulteress. Whereas under the law of Christ, a husband is not allowed to kick his wife to the curb, but must continue to care for her no matter what. So there's a drastic change from the Mosaic law to what we're commanded in the New Testament. So it's very clear here. We're talking about the Mosaic law. We're not talking about the natural law. We're not talking about laws in general. We're not talking about good things versus bad things. We're not talking about Roman law or Christian law. We're talking about the Mosaic law. And under the Mosaic law, a wife had to wait for her husband's death to be free of him. A woman who remarried her husband, who is still remarried while her husband is still alive has become an adulteress under the law, but if she remarries after his death, she is free from the law of marriage, or in a more formal translation, released from the law of the husband. I think this is helpful to cohere the analogy, because Paul isn't just saying that the wife of the deceased is free to remarry, but that she is free from her former husband's authority. 
Now, this is maybe not the way it works in our culture today, but the wife was under the authority of the husband, and she was stuck there until such time as he would die. When he dies, she is not just free to remarry, she is no longer following his commands. She no longer has to do what he says. She no longer has to live where he lives. She does what she wants. She is free from his authority. Now, this seems like it's hardly the perfect analogy, since it is not believers' husband that has died, but believers themselves who have died with Christ, they are no longer married to the law because of their death with Christ, and as His body are now His bride. No analogy could perfectly express what Paul is communicating here, since there's no analogy uh, where someone dies and yet continues to live, but this is exactly what takes place in the unique event in which believers die with Christ and yet still remain physically alive. But the main point is intact. One's relationship to the law changes when death occurs. It continues verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This verse shows that it wasn't such a bad analogy after all. Not only have believers died, but they are now also married to another. Not only have they left the law behind in proximity, but also its authority over them has been broken. Dead to the law, its authority over them stops. They are no longer under the rule of the old husband, but through death are now under authority of the new. The Jews in the church at Rome had at one time been bound to the law as part of the old covenant but now their death through baptism at conversion releases them from their relationship to the law of Moses. They have been freed to remarry, as it were, and now they were in a new covenant relationship with Jesus. Because they have died to the law, they can now belong to another. They are no longer under the authority of the law, but are now under grace. But that is not all. Not only are Jewish believers freed from their former relationship with the law, but Paul wants us to understand why such a relationship is no longer needed. When we are joined into covenant relationship with Jesus, this new relationship succeeds where the old marriage failed. We belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And this brings us back to Paul's central thesis and the life-transforming gospel that he proclaimed. It brings us back to a gospel that leads to the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. It brings us back to a gospel that is both from faith and to faith, a gospel that not only justifies, but it is a gospel which also sanctifies. And how does this transformation take place? Is it through adherence to the law of Moses? Of course not. Those who have died to sin, Paul says, have also died to the law. And this dying is not something that we have experienced in ourselves or by our own initiative, but through the body of Christ. As with the previous chapter, chapter 6, Paul wants to emphasize that believers died to the power of the law by being incorporated 
into Christ. That is, we are in Him, and He is in us. And so what is true of Him is also true of us. So Christ died, and in a way, I died also. I died to sin, and I died to the law. The law no longer has authority over the Jewish Christians because they have died with Christ to the law's rule. They are now free from the dominion of the law and married to Christ. They can't go back to the old husband. They're under an all-new authority. That is, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ not only removed the condemnation from the law, but it also broke the power of the law over believers so that Paul's law-free gospel far from promoting immorality, actually enables people to bear fruit for God. Now, formerly, this was different, Romans 7, 5 to 6, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, Paul speaks of we here in reference to the lives of Jewish believers before they became followers of Jesus. Paul, a Jew himself, reminisces what was life like then? It was characterized by sinful physical desires that were at work in the parts of their bodies, which were then actually aroused by the law rather than being restrained by the law. And they were at work within them in order to bear fruit for death. Now, here Paul departs from consensus Jewish theology because most believed that the law helped keep people from sinning. But Paul claims here just the opposite. The law increased trespasses, he said in Romans 5.20. Through, now we know it's through stimulating their inherent sinful passions. The good news is that the Jewish Christians have been released from the law, not only its condemnation, but also from its rule, which resulted in increasing sin. And so Paul describes their former state as being held captive, which makes it absolutely clear that freedom from the law is a good thing for them. They are no longer held captive under which, what, which produced death. I can't, didn't say that right. They are held, no longer held captive, only that which produced death. God does not want Christians, even Jewish Christians, to serve Him by following the law of Moses. He wants them to serve now in the new way of the Spirit and with obedience from the heart. And if the law of Moses is no longer binding on Jewish Christians, why would Jewish Christians try to impose it on Gentile Christians? If the law were still a means by which to relate to God, the Gentile converts were at a severe disadvantage compared with the Jewish people who were raised from birth knowing the law but the new covenant in Christ places all people on the same footing in relation to God. And so, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 16, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants 
of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, let's pause there. There was, at one time, it was really bad news. We had none of the benefits of being the people of God. But then in verse 13, it says, But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, if you've been following with us in Romans, this is one of the key things that Paul's addressing is there's there's divisions between Jewish and Gentile believers. The Gentile believers, or sorry, the Jewish believers who have always kept the law are now inundated with all these Gentiles joining the church, and none of them do the right things. And so they're, they're wondering, what, what do we have to make these guys do? How do we get them to start dressing appropriately and trimming their beards appropriately and eating appropriately? I think someone brought bacon to the potluck. And so Paul addresses this church, and he doesn't come to a, a compromise between these people. He doesn't say, okay, the Jews are going to do their thing their way, and the Gentiles are going to do their things their way. Or he doesn't separate them and say, okay, you guys meet here in the synagogue, and you guys meet over here in the church. But he says, actually, God has abolished any division between you. None are under the law. None of you. You have a new husband. You're not under the authority of the old. Now, when we talk about Christians being under the law, we have to get it right. And I don't think many do. Some of us have a a hazy thought about what it means to not be under the law. But one thing we have to remain clear about is there still remains an obedience for the people of God. We still have to obey. So when we say we're not under the law, we're not saying you shouldn't obey anymore. We obey whatever Jesus commands us to do as believers. He is our Lord. But our obedience is not in the old way of the written code, threatened on one hand by cursing and death and, and with the carrot of blessing and life on the other. Now we serve in the new way of the Spirit, living out our born-again natures and the righteous desires of the new heart which we are gifted by God's Spirit. Romans 6:17 obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And so Christians have been resurrected into a new life in Christ so that they should now bear fruit to God. What the law failed to elicit from us, that obedience that the law could not produce, that righteousness that the law failed to produce, Christ wants to see born through our relationship to him. So, justification by faith and living under grace is never a license to sin, but we are to be encouraged by our new status, by the power of the life that is within us, the righteousness that is a possibility now, and the fruit of Christ that can be brought forth in us. It is a wonderful hope. Not only is it a wonderful hope, it is already intrinsic to our nature if we are those who are in Christ. What shall we say then? Verse 7, Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So after Paul celebrates with the believers the release from the law's authority, the beginning and end of these statements is then to defend the law. God didn't give them an unrighteous law. God didn't give them an evil law. God didn't give them a broken law. The problem was not ultimately with the law, but with the human heart. The commandment itself is not sinful, but holy, righteous, and good, yet it provided no power to restrain sin. Rather than to restrain sin, though the law was righteous and good, it only exacerbated the problem when applied to rebellious human hearts. Consider Adam and Eve in the garden. God has placed them in an abundant garden with everything they could ever need or even want to enjoy. Uh, With one single minor exception, there was no limitation on what they could do. They're in a garden of trees, and they're given a command not to eat from one tree. If they had not been given a command not to eat from that tree, they may not have even have found that tree. They might not even have noticed that tree for a very long time. They could not have been tempted if there had not been a command. And without a command, there could be no temptation to transgress the command. So God's good command became the weapon, the tool which the serpent used to lure Adam and Eve to sin against God. As rebels to God's will, we are not just tempted by forbidden pleasures, but we also desire to experience the intense pleasure of doing what is forbidden and therefore manifesting our own independence and the right to direct our own lives as we see fit. So we're not only tempted by the tree, we're tempted just by the command telling us no. Those of us who have raised children know a little bit about how this works. We can give our children everything they could ever want, but if we lovingly insist that they never do something, uh, they often struggle more with that very temptation than they had before. Without the command, they may never have thought about it. But once the command is given, it is now an ongoing and constant temptation. This is what Paul means when he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Without the law, people are still constantly coveting without even thinking about it, but the law stirs up our sinful passions so that sin only increases. Now, Paul speaks of himself for the remainder of the chapter, reflecting on his pre-Christian experience as a Jew under the law. And so, though the primary reference is to Paul himself in this passage, his experience is representative, showing that the reality for all those under the law is that it produces death instead of life. 
Now remember, we're not talking about people who don't believe Jesus was their salvation. We're talking about people who have come, Paul's talking to people that have come back to think, and how are we going to get better? How are we going to grow? We got to follow the law, maybe. So Paul uses the 10th commandment as his sample case, which is incredibly important to our understanding here for a number of reasons. The first is that it refutes what has become a common misunderstanding of Paul's declaration. Paul continually insists throughout his writings that believers are not under the law. And this has commonly become misunderstood so that some teach that the law can be divided into moral, civic, and ceremonial categories. And then they would say that while believers are not under the law in regard to the civic and ceremonial laws, they certainly remain under the law in regard to the moral laws. Now, not only does this teaching leave us without any solid biblical basis for which laws should be regarded as moral, But when Paul uses an example law, he uses one which does not require an outward action, but is explicitly an internal and moral sin of the heart. One one simply cannot argue that the command not to covet is merely civic or ceremonial, but this is a perfect example of a law which Christians are not now under. Not only that, but although coveting is not typically thought of today as one of the really bad sins, it is one of the sins most commonly censured in the New Testament, one of, that is identified most often in the sin list to say, you must not live this way. It's identified in both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, 5 as the sin of idolatry. So, Paul also likely uses the law not to covet as an example because Jewish tradition, in Jewish tradition, covetousness was considered the root of all sin. And the, the prohibition to covet, a summary of all the Ten Commandments. And so, James 1.14, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so, those who live, whose lives, sorry, are filled with coveting are guilty of the fundamental sin. By desiring what is forbidden, they thereby show that they treasure and delight in someone or something more than they delight in the one true God. And to covet, like Adam and Eve did, is to call God a liar who cannot provide what we need. Those who covet have another God than the one true God. They are idolaters. Thus, coveting can be understood as the fundamental sin. And if the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is the example Paul chooses, a command which, because of sin, actuated the latent or hidden sin of his heart, we know that it is a law, Romans 7, 6, from which believers have now been released, having died from that which kept us captive. Now, does he not elsewhere teach Ephesians 5, 3, that covetous Sorry, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And Colossians 3, 5, that you must 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, including covetousness, which is idolatry. The commandment rightly assesses covetousness, that it is sin, which results in death. And with this, the New Testament wholeheartedly agrees. Ephesians 5, 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God. But God designed the law to grant life only to those who obeyed it. A key verse which is referenced in many other passages of Scripture is Leviticus 18.5. It says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God promised blessing and life to those who kept the law of Moses. But He also promised cursing and death to those who failed to keep it. Both are listed exhaustively in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And since all people inevitably fail to obey all of God's good commands they inevitably experienced only the negative consequences held by the law. So the law then held out the promise of a good life. The law promised life to those who would obey, but ultimately sin took the law and used it to bring a curse upon God's people. It used the law to kill God's old covenant people. So if someone comes and they preaches a sermon titled, Stop Coveting, and then lists all the benefits promised in the Old Testament if you do stop, and then all of the negative repercussions if you don't, they have once again presented to the law to all of its devastating effect. I heard many sermons like this growing up. Don't be proud. Be humble. You ought to be humble. Here's all God resists the proud. Here's the good things that happen for those who are humble. So go, church, be less proud. Does that have any effect on us? No, we we can't do it. Yes, it sounds good. I would like to have life. I would like to be blessed. But I'm really bad at doing the commands of God. These sorts of sermons will not transform our hearts and present us righteous before God. But like telling you not to imagine pink elephants, it will only stir up the hidden sins of our hearts and make them apparent. But you, Romans 7, 4, if you have believed the genuine gospel, have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8, 1-4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Remember, this is covetousness that Paul uses as an example. Which law are you no longer under? One example is the law not to covet. An important law. Something which we're still commanded again in the New Testament. But the gospel doesn't tell me not to covet so that I might live and earn the blessings of God. The gospel tells me that though I failed to obey the command, Christ has died, and I in Him have died to the law which brought only sin and death. And Christ was resurrected to the reward of righteous obedience, and I in Him. So there is nothing left to covet. There's no longer any logic in covetousness. There's no longer any logic in greed. It's utterly unthinkable to be proud when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no longer any logic to coveting because the reward of Christ is mine. Only by being freed from the law of sin and death can the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us. When I recognize that I have coveted, I do not decide that I will try to covet less in order to earn the rewards of righteousness. When I covet as a New Testament believer, I recognize that such behavior is illogical and unnatural for me. It doesn't feel right. It's just not who I am now, but a vestige of what is now dead and gone. When sin invades my reality now, it feels disgusting. I can't believe it. It's atrocious. I abhor it. I don't feel comfortable. I'm not uh, satisfied by sin any longer. It's now an obedience from the heart, from a transformation that takes place by God's own Spirit so that God gets all the credit. If we were still under a law church, we would come and be able to compare to one another who keeps the law better. And I could say, I'm doing a good job because I'm doing better than that guy. But in the gospel, it's the work of God. He gets all the glory. My sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone. Yes, I participate, but it is all God's work to both change my desires and give me the power to do it. In this way, my sanctification will be completed, not by returning to the law which brought death, but by the work of God who accomplished in me what the law could not do. God will receive all the glory for my sanctification by faith, even as I am prepared for glory in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we come into Romans 6, there were some of us who felt like this is a hard message. Is, is the Bible telling us that we, as Christians, have to be slaves to righteousness, obeying God all the time? How do we do it? I, I'm bad at doing that. 
But the great hope of the gospel is that despite my terrible failures, Christ has been successful. He has victoriously obeyed through every circumstance. He has won what I could not. He has earned what I never could and freely granted it to us. Father, we thank you so much for your plan for salvation that you even provided the law to show just how sinful we truly were, how desperately in need of a substitute we were. And throughout the Old Testament, we saw time and time again, your people were given a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and and a hundredth chance and yet never could piece together uh, enough days in a row of obedience to you to earn the blessing your law promised. Forgive us, God, where we have believed a false gospel that says that God will give you another chance. But help us to embrace the biblical gospel that says that Christ died and I in Him. I am now dead to sin and alive to Christ. Transform us, we pray, as our minds are renewed in Your Word. May we be Christians who rightly know our status as those who are dead to sin, dead to the law, but having our hearts changed. And may we rest in the promise that you who have begun this good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus, so that we will be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And may we give you all the credit and praise, for this all comes from you who are the Spirit at work in us. We give you praise and glory. Amen. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone.
darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within. Christ alone. 